Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm Dr. Saul Rosenthal, a health psychologist in the Boston area, and your host as we investigate the incredible connections between brain and body. Today's guide is Robert Rusty Turner, known by many of us in the neurofeedback world as a board-certified neurologist with specialties in adult and pediatric epileptology, neurofeedback, and quantitative EEG. For almost 40 years, he has provided clinical services, EEG interpretation, and consultation on neurophysiologic disorders. Rusty has a strong interest in lifestyle factors that impact neurologic health, and in recent years has been talking about the ways our modern world, with rapid changes in nutrition, physical activity, sleep, and exposure to electromagnetic fields, interacts with and impacts the electromagnetic functioning of our brains and nervous systems. I talked with him about how environmental and lifestyle factors change the EEG and impact our life experience. Rusty, welcome back to Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Thank you. Yeah, I think I, th- I think you're the first person we've had back for a second go. And last time we talked about the effects of electric and magnetic fields on the brain and behavior. And today we're talking about something I suspect it's related. Uh, but on on June 22nd, you'll be giving a webinar called Detecting Lifestyle Instabilities in the EEG. I guess the place to start is what do you mean by lifestyle instabilities? For a few years, I've used a phrase to quote Bessel, the body keeps the score, but the brain tells the story. Is and The EEG, I think, is such an incredible tool. In our field, we use the EEG as more, that's our data intake so we can get quantitative EEG. And in the neurology epilepsy world, we use the EEG to quote diagnose epilepsy or encephalopathy or these words that we throw around. And my experience has been over the last, doing this with EEG 40 40 years and over the last 20 years delving deeper and deeper. And I think understanding QEG has helped enlighten what I see in the squiggles every day. But the EEG I'm seeing over the last 10 to 15 years, more and more abnormalities or instabilities in the EEG, things that just aren't neurotypical for whatever the age. And so I've chosen to call those instabilities because we pretty much look for slowing, spikes, focal changes between one side or the other of the brain. And... um, I'm just seeing these patterns that have continued to trouble me. And I, I've self-doubted, self-questioned myself over and over, like maybe I'm overdoing it, over-interpreting, because that was always kind of the anathema in our world was, when in doubt, call it normal. That was an early mantra, and I was trained by some of the most phenomenal early EEG, Chuck Henry, and it just incredible people that were there kind of at the beginning with Gibbs and Gibbs and had just, it was such a wonderful experience. And we delved into the EEG and we discussed it and kind of tore it apart. And now I feel as people get busier and busier, we were, you know, EEG comes up, read through it. Yeah, it looks pretty normal. And, and I mentioned I'm seeing somebody a little bit on a Zoom mentoring session and was looking at the previous EEGs by colleagues I know and who are very good. And and the way things are worded, 
and kind of glossed over is concerning. So instant that long answer, and I don't even know if I answered the question, but I feel like our field in neuroregulation, neuromodulation, we have the greatest tool that we often don't look as in depth at as we should. We use it, we artifact, and much of the stuff we would choose or the, the um, algorithms that do the artifacting, artifact out key findings that give us information about that client or that patient. And again, my experience has been tracking that back to how our unhealthy lifestyles that we all have, I guess, to some degree, influence every organ system in our body, which I feel every organ system is electromagnetic. And so they're all influenced. So as you as you begin to see more of these patterns over the last decade or so, are there any, I don't know, general trends that you're seeing? Uh, do they seem to re relate to particular uh, unhealthy lifestyle habits? Two good separate questions. <clears throat> the second one's a little more difficult. What correlates? Because we always want biomarker. This is the biomarker for this disorder or this clinical entity. And our brains are amazingly specific, but I don't think they're always that specific. So when you see some focal slowing, but um, the recently, probably over the last couple of years, as I've delved more and more outside the box of our more traditional American epilepsy EEG literature, there's so much wealth in the world. And so as I've been able to interact with it at levels like the International Against Epilepsy and the World Health Organization with some other international groups. And then most recently getting, and I mentioned this maybe before, delving into the Russian and Ukrainian literature post-Chernobyl, which is a whole different level of, of electromagnetic radiation. That's another conversation. So I, what's emerged, I kept seeing consistent things that were driving me kind of crazy. Was I overinterpreting? Was I getting demented? Was <laughs> whatever? And I came up with a new acronym. And I think, as you know, I, I, I occasionally use acronyms. And I've, I've, for many years, I've talked about my meds acronym eating, disconnecting, sleeping. Those are the fundamentals of, I think, human health. That when we get those things step by step in order, a whole lot of our other systems, including the brain, get in order. So meds, not very fancy, not going to copyright meds, right? But it's a, it's a catch when I tell people we're going to talk about meds today. But a new one I've come up with it right now, I don't see how it will evolve, is basis and these changes I have been seeing and continue to see characterize more and more focal slowing left frontal temporal and seeing it in all age groups. Not in obviously in every EEG, but more common than I've been used to. And you know, even looking back in older EEGs that I have access to on occasion, did I just miss it then? Did we miss it then collectively as, e as electroencephalographers? I don't know. And I, I don't think so based on the limited evidence going back and looking at older EEGs, which are sometimes still available. So this focal slowing was one. 
seeing a gradual trend in all age groups of changes in the posterior dominant, the PDR, posterior dominant rhythm, of either slowing of that frequency, which should not be occurring, or, or and or lowering of the power spectrum amplitude. And I think there's distinctive reasons for that, maybe from a mitochondrial ox, ox phosphorylation, um, redux issues, things like that. But anyway, so, but changes in the posterior dominant rhythm. And what we don't have, unfortunately, in our field, and I wish we did, and I'd heard that we, that was available in the early years in Cuba, that I guess Castro, what I'd heard, and I've never seen it verified, was collecting EG, yearly EGs on his citizens. And um, what an incredible treasure. And that's another conversation. Um, so we don't have the EGs to compare, but when I'm seeing a six or seven or a 10 year old or a teenager or a 40 or 50 year old and they're seven and a half, eight, eight and a half, technically eight to 12, right? Normal or, but not neurotypical, not what's to be expected. So it's sometimes, and seeing other EGs sequentially where the background slows and the way we do quantitative EG is so wonderful because you can quantitate that down to a fraction of the, the frequency. And then these lower amplitudes, how often you have to turn up the volume on the EEG to get to see the background. So slow, focal slowing or slowing in general, but focal slowing in particular, left frontotemporal, there's changes in the PDR, uh, beta, far more beta, atypical beta, because there's a healthy beta, just like there's a healthy PDR, and there's healthy places where that manifests. And that's certainly... a a big discussion in our field today with spindly excessive beta. How does that tie in with, as a, as a manifestation, not the cause of, but a manifestation of neuroinflammation, I think it is. And then isolated epileptiform spikes, IEDs, isolated epileptiform discharges, which in neurology epilepsy, where we call interictal epileptiform discharges, even when there's no ictal to put an inter before, you know, and so uh, ictal, of course, applies some type of event. So seeing more spikes. And then the other thing, which I think is, is validated across the board in our field as well, is how many EGs come in in five, you know, the 10 minute, the 20 minute recording, whatever, and they're drowsy or asleep within sometimes seconds or a minute or two. And that was long before COVID is a big problem, obviously the COVID pandemic and all the lifestyle changes that come with that. So anyway, I've, I've made an acronym now of BASIS, beta, alpha, slowing, which is more the focal slowing, I for isolated epileptiform discharges and S for sleep. So that just hopped up early one morning in my mind and it kind of fits. So I'm seeing if that continues to work and you referred to it earlier on, I, I think based on a bunch of the literature that I've been able to continue to review, that's not published in the mainstream epilepsy journals, the stuff from the incredible scholarship that has come out of Ukraine and, and Russia for decades and decades. And 
one of the most seminal papers, I think, was published in the Spanish Journal of Psychology. And then I was looking here the other day, I just was reviewing an article by Niedermeyer um, and Oldhorn, speaking of where things are published and what we tend to look at. We look at the rankings of journals. Algorithms as Physiologic and Abnormal Phenomena by Dr. Niedermeyer, published in 1997 in the International Journal of Psychophysiology. As you were going through these different patterns, uh, I think about the cues I've been sending, which I, I think you review actually, and the uh, people doing the quantitative analysis often sort of gently poke fun at me because almost every cue I send, the person's falling asleep within a minute, minute and a half. Uh, so I would say at least 90, 95% of the ones that I'm sending show pretty significant drowsiness. So that's been a real obvious one, at least at my end. Uh, and I can imagine the, the I, I could also imagine that these five patterns you're talking about are, are interrelated to some of, to some extent. Yeah. It's not like anyone is specific, obviously increased beta in whatever frequency spectrum of beta we're looking at and distribution is not pathognomonic, you know, it, it's not pathognomonic of neuroinflammation or, but I think it is indicative. It, it, it makes sense that as we're stirring things up, we'll see these different frequencies. And, but the frequencies is the lingua franca of the brain. It's, it's, it's these frequencies are specific for a reason. And so impairment or instability or disruption in different frequencies, as we know, has implications A broad frequency contamination doesn't necessarily affect all the frequencies the same. And that's why the basis has come up. One, one quick thing I'll just put in is I, I again, going through all the Russian and Ukrainian literature relative to Chernobyl, course Hiroshima and then the, the other this the other unfortunately there's not been much EG literature after the 2011 nuclear disaster after the tsunami but 20 30 plus years ago and when they were tracking EG so vigilantly diligently in the in the book those the survivors the ones that had acute radiation syndrome and then the 150,000 cleanup workers, and they have incredible literature. And they back then reported, I don't know if we've talked since then, is that, and, and we shared this, but in there, focal slowing, left greater than right. And they it's really cool with the correlations they're tying that, that in with diencephalic pathways and brainstem issues, which is a really, it, start, it makes sense from a physiologic standpoint, from a radiation standpoint. But they were talking at the early stages because they did EEGs three to five years after Chernobyl, which was 1986. And then they did EEGs again 10 to 13 years. And they, they, they called that the early group and the late group. And there's distinct, almost predictable changes, which understanding radiation would make sense. And obviously the chronic increasing pervasive exposure that we all are facing as humans from electromagnetic, artificial electromagnetic radiation is different in character. It's these, they were describing the same changes 20, 30 years ago that I'm seeing in the EEG. And so 
how does that apply? Because we're in a very different part of the electromagnetic spectrum. But it has nothing to do to me with ionizing, non-ionizing. You may have heard those arguments used by incredible scientists. Well, ionizing is a problem. That's gamma and all those things, the nuclear radiation and things. And non-ionizing simply means it doesn't break the DNA bonds or the, or the ionic bonds. Well, there's a whole lot of things like microwaves <laughs> that are non-ionizing, but I definitely wouldn't want my head near or in a microwave. You know, it's like, it's not a good thing. So it's I, that's what I'm still currently struggling with and will probably still be struggling with at the time of the NRBS because I'm trying to find colleagues where I can discuss these things uh, around the world and have a discussion and say, yeah, this makes sense. You know, this is, this applies, this doesn't make sense. But I'm seeing the evidence of EEG changes and I'm trying to find a plausible explanation that if it is stuff that I'm seeing or that we all are seeing or will be seeing more and more. It, it's, it certainly seems like it's something that is evolving, our understanding. And I guess as you were talking, maybe this is an oversimplification, but it reminds me of how we have learned what we know about the brain, which is we lesion it, and then we make sort of general rules about functioning. So you've taken an extreme event, the Chernobyl disaster, and we're deriving from that the impact that, you know, less intense uh, electromagnetic waves may have on the brain, but it's a spectrum. So it makes sense that they're going to have some similar effect. Again, it may not be at that extreme, but we're also exposed to these things over much longer, usually much longer periods of, of time. And much higher intensity. And that that's one thing I haven't, I, I was trying to conceptualize, and some of this will maybe come up in the, in the presentation, but conceptualize area under the curve. We all learned that in school, the area under the curve is what's significant when you're trying to measure certain factors. And obviously the area under the curve, so to speak, from a nuclear disaster of some type is massive, but it's a shorter period of time relatively. I mean, there's radioactive decay and all that. Conceptually, the area under the curve that we're facing in the really getting into the terahertz, but it's certainly up into the gigahertz range that is exposed. That's why all the technology is in this certain area because it's not filtered by the, the various levels of the stratosphere and ionosphere. So it, it, I'd love to show, I'll show those pictures later, but that's what's getting through. That's why the satellites have that capable technology, 5G and 6G, because that gets through. It's not filtered out by our Earth's atmosphere. And so the cumulative effect seems to me as for humans is huge and increasing over a long period of time. So that area under the curve almost seems comparable, even though I'm kind of talking a little bit about apples and oranges from a Chernobyl type disaster versus this chronic artificial environmental exposure but it makes sense we're exposed more. And then we see the evidence of more genetic abnormalities, 
not just because we're better genetic testers, although we do have incredible genomic stuff that we can do, and increased illness throughout humans and all the evidence we see of flora and fauna being affected by our toxic world, environmental, artificial environmental, EMF, toxins in the world, the, the pollution that we put into it, all those things are taking a toll. And the EEG may be showing it. Are you enjoying this podcast? Find out more about this episode's guest at their NRBS webinar. We have both free and very inexpensive continuing education webinars. So whatever level of interest you have in biofeedback, neurofeedback, and neuromodulation, you'll find plenty to choose from at NRBS. Follow the links in the show notes. We hope to see you at an upcoming program. I guess I just want to sort of step a little bit away from the EMF, primarily because we have a whole episode on that that, that our listeners can go back to and, and, and certainly review. You also talk about toxins. I guess I'm also wondering about other behavioral lifestyle instabilities. And I, I guess I, I think of, of the drowsiness as really reflecting the changes in just amount, if not quality of sleep over the last 20 years. So, you, you know, when, when studies were shown 20 or so years ago using the theta-beta ratio to show hydration with the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, it's a lot harder to use that validly these days because all of our theta-beta ratios are higher because we're getting less sleep. Oh, a lot about sleep. I trained in sleep, but I think we, we are missing often the elephant in the room. Guess what? EMF. <laughs> I will try not to keep cut. I feel like that's my mag. So the term I use now, and I think I've, you know, when I see your EGs pop up, I, I almost predict. So when I've seen a couple that come through and they didn't get drowsy, I go, wow, you know, but I talk about the sleep sanctuary, the sleep environment. And I think that's kind of the elephant we don't think about. I mean, back in the 1970s, the American Academy of Pediatrics told parents, get technology, quote unquote, out of the bedroom for, you know, no TV in the bedroom. Back then that was about the technology, right? And because it was a problem. And now we almost don't think about it and how that creates the unhealthy sleep environment toxic wise and you mentioned sleep quality and sleep quantity and how many clients do you see they some report man i, I sleep 10 11 12 hours and i'm exhausted you know, there's not evidence of restorative sleep so that would imply to me at least even with a sleep study which may or may not help it's it, it, it's not restorative sleep and so in my experience there's many things contributing to that lack of restorative sleep. And some of that is just high tech habits. What are we doing at night? We're not using screen protection, blue light, high energy visible blue light, so on and so forth. And then at least in my simplistic way, I come back to the meds, we're less mobile. And we know not exercising before bed, but when we're more active during the day, we tend to probably have a better restorative sleep, deeper sleep. And then brain gut, we, the, the influences that our microbiome has on our whole system, including circadian ultradian rhythms, articles that keep popping up on all the different listservs about the gut connection with this, that. And I think to um, back early 90s, but when uh, incredible 
physician from Harvard wrote The Second Brain. It was all about the gut. And I think it's well over 30 years ago that he wrote that book, and now we have all these discoveries. So I think the gut, and, I, and I, I'm not a big fan of social media. There's incredible use, but misuse. And I think that's probably one of the biggest lifestyle changes, our increased use of electronics and social media and things tends to decrease our mobility. We tend not to eat as well. We tend not to sleep as well as we do more of those things. And then just the havoc that cyberbullying and all the stuff that's going on with media does on the developing brain, let alone the supposedly mature brain like mine. Even the, Amer the American Psychiatric Association, others are advising caution, just like 80 years ago, the, the, the MAO finally started advising caution with smoke, cigarette smoke. And here we are, we still have how many billions of smokers and cigarettes produced every day, like it is what it is. And so those are just some of the, when you mentioned the lifestyle things that can contribute, I still, I start with the foundation of the meds. Then the disconnect, of course, can include the whole social media thing, which I tend not to get into. And there's incredible clinicians that have been addressing that as well. Yeah, that's a, a, a tough, very tough nut to crack because it's become just part of the environment like anything else. It is now very much integrated into everything we do. Sometimes I divide us as humans and we're, we're sort of, we have spiritual, physiological, and psychological. I call that the, anyway, I call it the three Ps because I, physiological is the body, psychological, the mind, so to speak. And the, the spiritual aspect, I, I use the Greek word pneumo, for, which means spirit or wind or breath, you know, so I call it the three Ps. And we, we're not, you can't sort of go in and divide those too clearly, but those are all influenced. We have spiritually rooted disorders that manifest in the physiology and the psychology. And that's why I think this whole approach is so important. And I see that so much more in our field, folks in, in neuroregulation, neuromodulation, looking, taking the time. I was on with some clinicians yesterday. How often do you hear as a clinician, nobody ever asked these, nobody ever listened to me like this before. They feel like they're finally heard and because we're looking at root causes, looking for root causes and ways to get whole solutions. Maybe it's our temperament where we're attracted to this field in, in large part because we are, we try to be integrative thinkers. So we're, we're, we're trying not to be as siloed as I think many of, um, much of healthcare has, has become. So there's sort of generally, or maybe a little bit generally speaking, there's EMF, there's social media, there's sleep, nutrition, and, and there are certainly ways that I think those will, maybe not specifically, but, but we, can, we can see those patterns in the EEG. And others, I know, I know we can, because I, I think one of the things about the EEG is it's, it's not always specific, which is, which is frustrating as, as, a, as a neurofeedback provider. But, but I guess I also wonder, what role does neurofeedback and neuromodulation play in trying to correct some of these instabilities? The word that pops to my mind is crucial. And as I began my discovery 
although it obviously has existed for decades. And my, my waking up from the matrix and learning about neurofeedback and reading Symphony in the Brain and going to the very first course with Barry Sturman and Joe Lubar and Jay and Cindy Curson, Jay Gunkelman and Cindy Curson. The discovery of neurofeedback, in a sense, <clears throat> is extraordinary, but it's with all respect, I mean, it's, it's common sense. Exercise for our brain looks very different than exercise for our body when we work up a sweat. But when we exercise our brain, we use energy. And so getting to your question, I think it is still foundational. And it's, it's too bad that we don't have a system. You can have a exercise coach and go to the gym and, and all that, but most people can continue an exercise routine on a regular basis without much expense. And your feedback is not set up that way. Plus we have a healthcare system, of course, that doesn't always pay for healthcare, right? And this is healthcare. But if you're going to get at the root of things, my simplistic way still of thinking about neurofeedback is you're exercising the brain, the neural networks from a whole standpoint. Even when we do localized training, whether that's power amplitude training, Loretta, other types of stimuli, it's the way of helping the brain get better. And our brains are smarter than we are. And that's the cool thing that at least I saw in my practice that once people made the improvement, because I was kind of a stickler, we're going to do this, but we've got to also be doing some of the lifestyle things. And when they did that, they rarely came back. And of course, we tried to do a lot of it with, I worked with CMS for a long time and with Medicaid and Medicare, because a high percentage of the, at least the kids that we saw had that from their neurological issues. But that was a continuing uphill battle, as we know very well with the CPT committees and stuff, trying to get reimbursement for that. Um, but I think it is absolutely a no-brainer. And why wouldn't we keep doing some form of neurofeedback? But I felt like once the brain learned new patterns, it did a really good job of keeping that going as long as we didn't relapse into other behaviors that or, or lifestyle things that were not contributing to a healthy brain. So the behavioral piece is also necessary. I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a health psychologist, so I do a lot of health-related behavioral change work. And there are certainly times when I may be doing neurofeedback or biofeedback, and that gives enough of a kickstart to the person to then make some of the behavioral or lifestyle changes. And sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes I just the neurofeedback can't overcome the drowsiness uh, or, or other issues. And, and trying to get people to change their behavior is, is obviously difficult. Otherwise, they wouldn't come to see people like us. Uh, it's a lot easier to prescribe a pharmaceutical or to prescribe, quote unquote, prescribe neurofeedback because they can come, they do. There's this, this window, this is the intervention. And I would agree. It, it, and fortunately, in this field, we typically don't do that in the neuromodulation or regulation field. But if all we did was sort of prescribe neurofeedback and not look at the rest of the whole person, it feels to me like almost as a healthcare prescriber, 
somebody comes in, I'm prescribing this medicine for the symptoms. It's like an endocrinologist prescribing insulin for their patient and doing nothing else about all the other stuff that's essential to the care of a person with diabetes. It's almost malpractice. Just if all we do is prescribe, I call it diagnosis of adios, but you know, we prescribe something, we're not looking at the big picture. But if we're trying to do the neurofeedback and you're seeing these EEG and quantitative EEG changes that are confirming what the person's experiencing, yeah, neurofeedback will help, but you're kind of working through sludge sometimes, whether that's with polypharmacy or other stuff. And it's it was so career and life changing when I woke up to that field because it was like, here's a great tool. The other thing that probably didn't help the, the long-term financial, not great, great aspects of my practice was the people, well, let's, we want to wait. We don't want to do neurofeedback yet. And they would commit because we spent a lot of time with education. We'll commit to these, this, let's do one thing at a time. Some of these health changes. And when they did that, we'd follow up with quantitative EEGs at visits, whatever, two, three, six months, something like that. And they saw the changes. They experienced the changes. Many of those people never ended up getting their feedback. They could have probably benefited, but they made such substantial changes. It's almost like healthcare could help put me out of business kind of stuff. But all the better if they could see it, taste what it feels like, and then oh, I get it. I'm going to work on maintaining this for the rest of my life. So I, I do like to end our conversations with some one thing questions, if that's okay. So so what is one thing you want our audience to take away from our discussion? What caught me is, as you described yourself, I think if I read correctly, as a health psychologist, I wish we, in my profession, you want to go see a provider, whether it's an MD or an advanced provider, or master's of social work, psychologist, whatever, who is a health physician, a health nurse practitioner. Um, I want our focus to be on helping to restore and maintain health. Let's elevate that word health. And you see the word brain health popping up in, in different places. And I think many ways to do it First, I guess the first is awareness, which has been a popular word for a long time in in the mindfulness world. We have to be aware of the things which are not contributing to our healthiness. Again, sometimes we're not aware of those things. And once we are taking simple, affordable, and usually free steps towards better health, neurofeedback is part of that. I just, I've always wanted to promote health because when people come to see us, they don't feel healthy. And we used to help health, hope, and healing was the three words that we used with my practice and looking for health, but looking for hope. Because many times, as you well know, and, and people who would listen to this podcast, people come, they're often pretty close to hopeless. Fortunately, they haven't lost all hope and they hear this stuff like, why has nobody ever told me about this before? And then healing, it can come. Hope, you got to have hope or we won't continue. What is one thing you've done yourself that you think has helped with 
your own lifestyle instabilities? I've, boy, there's been a whole lifestyle, a whole bunch of those things over my life, but it has been, the meds kind of fit into my life. So I try to maintain that with, went out for a run with a couple friends this morning and maintaining more of an active lifestyle, trying not always to sit with the hours that I spend in front as we, you know, doing a standing desk and, and things like that. But I've done that and consciously, it, it, my wife is one of those who I call them the normal people that just intuitively get that. She, of course, she trained in nutrition, but she's, done that healthiness so the moving the eating the disconnecting i'm always trying to use blue filters and i'm using um, f dot lux on the screens i use a cable versus wireless whenever i can you know wired over wireless things like that we have very uh, a sleep sanctuary try to have kind of a sanctuary in our home just a peaceful spirit and a lot of that is is quite quieting down my mind because I, friend years ago said, my mind is out to get me. And many things that I do in my life, in recovery and in health, promote that. And um, try to practice what I preach. And then that includes sleep. I love, who doesn't love to sleep? Especially when you know you need it and it's going to be restorative. Rusty, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it is always great to talk with you. I always learn at least three new things when we're talking and vice versa. So we continue to, this is fun, much more fun than just looking at some of your EGs from time to time. So <laughs> I appreciate that. And I look forward to your talk in, in the next month. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You are listening to healthy brain, happy body. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Our guide today was Dr. Robert Rusty Turner, neurologist and expert on EEG and quantitative EEG. Join us for his CE webinar on June 22nd about the impact of our modern lifestyle on our neurology. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link in the show notes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, rate us, and leave reviews at Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. Reviews help us get more listeners, and that's more people who can learn about and benefit from biofeedback and neurofeedback. Also, let us know what you think by sending us email. The address is healthybrain at nrbs.org. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. It's a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. All opinions expressed are those of our guests and not the NRBS. This podcast is not meant to replace advice from qualified healthcare providers. Be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Happy Body.